You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. In 1988, DreamWorks, along with Steven Spielberg, released that uh, animated movie, The Prince of Egypt. Uh, I think we've got a picture. Most of y'all probably saw that. I watched it with some of the grandkids, starring Brandon Millette. (laughs) It does. It looks like Brandon, doesn't it, Uh, right there? Um, uh, The Prince of Egypt, starring Brandon Millette as Moses. Um, And um, in doing that, Spielberg brought in a group of religious consultants. He had taken some rabbis and some Protestant uh, evangelicals. One of them happened to be my immediate predecessor in Jacksonville, Dr. Vines. I was talking to him this week about this very thing. Spielberg had the Lord say to Moses at the Passover, the most critical point Uh, of the story, the most critical point of the movie, uh, that uh, Moses was to say to the Hebrews, you put a mark on the doorposts. Well, Dr. Vine said they all, all of them were in agreement. The Jews, the evangelicals, all of them together were in agreement. You can't do that. Uh, If you do that, you you might as well not do the movie. Uh, It is uh, absolutely necessary that Moses tell the people they put blood on the doorposts. Uh, and, uh, it, and to his credit, Spielberg did just that. So it's in the movie. Uh, believe it or not, out of Hollywood, they put that in there. And it's there because when you come to the 12th chapter of Exodus, there is blood all over this chapter. You cannot escape it. You cannot get uh, away from it. Uh, This is one of the moments in human history that all of history turns. If you read any history uh, at all, you come to certain days uh, where they are so significant, far more significant than other days, they are days upon which the history of the world turns. Now, let me give you an illustration of that. If you want an illustration, you go back to December the 26th, 1776, when Washington marched those 3,000 continental troops, many of them barefooted through the snows uh, across the Hudson into uh, Trenton, New Jersey. And there, the first battle that he won uh, was in capturing those 1,200 German Hessian soldiers that the British had hired. It was, it was not the complete turn of the American Revolution, but it was the beginning of the turn. It was so significant that it would be said it was a day upon which the history of America turned. You can come to July the 3rd, 1863, Uh, when 15,000 men ran across a mile of open field and the Confederates breached the line. They broke the Union line, could not sustain it, 
and were, were pushed back, that was the day upon which American history turned. The Union knew that the victory at Gettysburg meant they would ultimately have victory in the Civil War. And from that moment on, Lee never took uh, the offensive again. Uh, that was a day upon which America's history turned. You can go to July, uh, June the 4th, 1944, a day upon which the history of not just Europe and America, but all of the world turned. When 153,000 American, Brits, Canadians, Australians landed on the beaches of Normandy, and there they pushed inland, and upon that day, literally, everybody understood that the Allied forces would push back Nazi Germany and eventually have victory. And they did. In less than a year, from June uh, of 44 until April of 45, when Nazi Germany surrenders. It, it, these are days upon which all of human history turns. You come to a night in chapter 12 upon which the history of all the world turns in what we know to be the Passover. Now, chapter 11 gives you really God's instruction to Moses, and chapter 12 is the carrying out of all of that. So we're going to look at that, those Two chapters are really just chapter 12 and just a few verses there. Because what God asks here is this. If you're in the 12th chapter, I want you to look at verse 22, where God instructs Moses to tell the people, you shall take a bunch of hyssop. Hyssop is a, I don't know if you'd call it a weed or not, but it's a plant. It's very bitter. You can eat it. They do eat hyssop on the night of, um, of Passover. It's a bitter type of herb. And they were to take that hyssop, use it like a paintbrush, dip it into the blood, which is in the basin, apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts. And when they do that, it registers in every Jewish mind that they are writing the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. I want you to look. It's called the Tav. It is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it looks like you are painting down both doorposts and across the top. That's the letter Tav, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it stands for completion. It's as if God is saying when they paint their doorposts and the lintel, this is complete salvation. This is complete deliverance. This is complete redemption. That letter right there is a part of many uh, words that are incredibly important in the Hebrew language. That letter stands for truth. You know how some letters, you know, we say A to Z, some letters have certain significance even to us in our alphabet. That, that letter there stands not only for completion, but it stands for truth. By the way, the word amet in, in Hebrew is the word for truth. Aleph is the first letter. Mem is the second. It's the middle letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And Tav is the last first, middle, and last. So it's almost as if God is saying Hebrew, in Hebrew, you have truth. So they paint that over their doors. It's very important. 
And, and so I just, I just put that in there to let you know I studied this week. So anyway, <laughs> there, there you go. That's essentially what they're doing. Now, when you come to Exodus chapter 11, chapter 12, 13, 14, and 15, you come to the heart of the book of Exodus. It is the heart of, I think, the whole of the Old Testament. Everything before this pours into this moment. Everything after this comes out of it. If you don't get Exodus chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, you really are somewhat lost through the rest of the Old Testament. This is what I would call uh, the Christological passage of the Old Testament. Uh, we have Christological passages in the New Testament like Colossians chapter 1. This is the Christological This is the passage that is showing you the future. If you were an Old Testament saint, this is showing you the future the way the book of Revelation shows us in apocalyptic form the future. What Revelation is to the New Testament, Exodus is to the Old Testament, and it doesn't use apocalyptic language, it uses symbolic language. So it becomes a, a symbol, a picture of what God is going to do in the first coming of Christ, where Revelation gives us what God is going to do in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And what God is saying to the Hebrews and to the rest of the world here is this. If you look back to chapter 6 of Exodus, God has told them what he's going to do. He comes in chapter 6 of Exodus in verse 6, and he says, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Now, look, look, you're all looking at me. I hope you got a Bible. Look at the text. You see the three things that he says there? I will bring you out. I will deliver you from. I will redeem you with. He is giving them the plan of salvation. He says, this is what I'm going to do. Verse 7, then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. Do you remember that I looked at that and I said, that sounds like a ceremony, a wedding ceremony. I take you to be my lawfully wedded bride. That's what God is saying here. It is a covenant. It is a marriage covenant of the sorts. He's saying, I will take you for my people and I will be your God. He gives them that and they believe it to begin with, but then, then everything gets harder for them and they think God has failed to do what he promised us. Nope, he doesn't fail to do. Even Moses thought that. Remember, Moses looks at God and says, hey, you've said you were going to deliver these people, but you've not done it. Well, what God promises, God always, always does. What he promised back in chapter 6, he's going to bring about in reality in Exodus chapter 12. God always fulfills his promise. You can trust God's word on salvation. Let me say that again. You can trust, you can always trust God's word on salvation. Now, go back with me now, and I want to show you two things out of this passage. You know, there's so much you could preach out of Passover and out of the 12th chapter, the 11th, the 12th chapter here, but I want to just give you two points this morning. I want you to look at two things. Number one, I want you to understand that um, everyone, 
everyone needs salvation. Everyone needs God's salvation because we're going to come to chapter 12 and we're going to think this, the only people that need salvation are the Egyptians. The only people that are going to need help here are the Egyptians, and that's not true because they're about to fall under the judgment of God, but so is Israel. The Jew is about to fall under the judgment of God as well. And you say, well, now, wait a minute, how, how do you see that? Well, now, just track with me now for just a little bit because I want you to understand that it was not only the Egyptians that were worshiping idols, so were the Hebrews. It was not only the Egyptians that had rejected God, so had the Hebrews. It was not only the Egyptians that had rejected the word of God, so had the Hebrews. And in fact, if you remember, we are told when things got harder for Israel that the elders of Israel went where? They didn't go to God. They went to Pharaoh. There's a constant looking back. There's a problem. Egypt has settled down deep in the heart of the Hebrews. Now you say, well, I'm not so sure I agree with you. Well, good, because I'm going to show you. Take your Bibles, put your finger right there in chapter 12. Go with me to the end of the book of Joshua. Uh, at the end of um, Numbers, really at the beginning of Deuteronomy, the whole of that group of Jews that came out of Egypt had died. Now there was a whole new generation that would go into the land. None of them were able to go in except for two, Joshua and Caleb. They were the only two that could go into the land. Everybody else, brand new. They had, they had come along after they had left Egypt. Now, you've got all of them there, and Moses gives them the law the second time in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomos, that is second law. And then Moses dies. Joshua takes them in. All of this new generation he takes into the land of promise, into the land of Canaan, into the land that God said flows with milk and honey. And for 13 years, they fought the Canaanites in the land of Canaan, and they defeated them, and they have taken now the land. It has been divided up among the tribes, and Joshua now is about to die. And so he comes at the end. So it's been over 53 years, 54, 55 years at least. And he comes now and he says in Joshua chapter 24, verse 14, now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. It is hard for me to believe and to grasp that there, was, there were those in these Hebrews still worshiping some of these Egyptian gods. In fact, let me show you this. Go on with me over to Ezekiel chapter 20. The prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 20, where God is going to speak. Boy, I'm just listening to all the pages turn. Wow. I'm looking. I'm going to eyeball you. Chapter 20 of Ezekiel. And listen to what is said beginning in the verse, in verse 7. God is speaking. I said to them, cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes. Do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them 
in the midst of the land of Egypt. So let me tell you, when you come to Exodus chapter 12, you need to understand it's not the judgment is going to fall just on the Egyptians. Judgment is going to fall on the Hebrew as well. It is coming and it's going to fall on everybody because the word of God says this, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Jew, Gentile, Jew, Egyptian, Jew, and whatever you happen to be, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Now you say, well, that's not what happens. No, because God makes provision for people. He makes provision for his people. He makes provision. Now listen, let me tell you, as I look at this, you need to understand this is not just because they are Jews, not just because they are descendants of Abraham, not just because they are chosen of God, but because God provides a means of redemption for those who will come under the blood. So now watch it, what's going to happen. And let me begin by reading just a verse out of Exodus 13, verse 2, where God says, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast. God says, it belongs to me. Now the judgment that's going to come, you know very, very well what it is. The destroyer is going to come and the destroyer is going to go in and take the life of the firstborn of Egypt. Now, that's going to happen because God has said, the firstborn belongs to me, number one. Number two, do you remember what God had said to Pharaoh? God said to Pharaoh, because you would not let my firstborn go. Now, who is the firstborn there in that statement? Israel. Because you would not let my firstborn go, I am going to come and take the life of your firstborn. So Pharaoh would not listen to God. He rejected that. He hardened his heart. And uh, he said, no, it's not going to happen. So now God's going to bring about in reality. What is this whole thing about the first, firstborn? We don't understand that because in our culture, we, we don't do things that way. But in the Hebrew culture, the firstborn was very significant, the firstborn male. The firstborn male inherited seven-eighths of everything that the father had. Now stick with me through this because I'm coming back to it. He inherited seven-eighths of everything that the father had and the rest of the children, regardless of who they were, all the other boys, all the other girls, they, they split up what was left. Well, they not only inherited everything, they became literally the patriarch of the family. We would say, in essence, that firstborn male became the federal head of that whole family. All of the other sons, all of the other daughters, they were the head of that family. That is, no business was enacted that it did not come through 
uh, that patriarch through that firstborn son. That if anyone in that family got crossways with the courts, the person who represented that family would be the firstborn son. That if anybody in that family ended up in slavery of some kind, debtor slavery, or in prison of some kind, it would be the firstborn son who would be the kinsman redeemer and would go and purchase that family member out of slavery or out of prison. So this firstborn son was significant, and God says, that firstborn child is mine. And I'm going to require him of everybody. Now, I'm not going to go to Numbers, but Numbers chapter 3, there is a means there that God provides for every firstborn child that a parent, when you had, if you had a young couple, first baby, it's a boy, they go and they take five shekels of silver down to the temple and they redeem the life of the firstborn. They purchase the life of the firstborn. This gets ingrained in their mind, in their head, in their culture, in their society. So what's going to happen here is going to be the loss of the whole of the family. Everything's going to be lost when the firstborn is gone. And so God here says there is a way to redeem the firstborn, and it is this. You take a lamb that is slain, you catch its blood, and then you paint that blood over the door posts, down the doorpost, over the lintel, so that when the destroyer comes through the land, he will see the blood, and he will pass over that house, and he will not bother the firstborn. Maybe you say, well, now, you know, preacher, how does that apply to me? What does that mean to me? What is that saying to me? Well, I want to show you something. Take your copy of God's Word. Go with me to the book of Hebrews, almost to the end of the New Testament. And I want you to listen to what the writer of Hebrews is saying. The writer of Hebrews comes in chapter 12. This is the last of the five great warnings in the book of Hebrews. He's talking about the difference between those who were under the law and those who are now under the covenant blood of Jesus Christ. He says those who were under the law, chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 18, for you've not come to a mountain that cannot be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness and gloom, and a whirlwind. That's where we're headed in Exodus. This is what happened at Mount Sinai when God came down. There was gloom. There was blazing fire. There was darkness. Uh, there was a whirlwind. And to the blast of trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that when he heard, uh, when the people heard, they begged no further word. That is, God thundered down from Sinai, and the people were so terrified, they told Mo, nope, no, 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 we don't want to hear that stuff anymore. You, you go talk to him. We can't stand all of this. So they couldn't bear the command. Look. They couldn't bear the command, verse 20, if a beast even touches the mountain, it will be stoned. They were terrified of their lives. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, by the way, let me tell you, you won't find this in the Old Testament. This is a statement that is in the New Testament that evidently was made by Moses, but it's not uh, recorded there. 
But here, the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has this quote of Moses, I'm scared too. I'm fearful. I'm full of fear and trembling. Y'all want me to go up there, but I'm scared too. But you've come to a mountain. Now, watch this. There's a shift. Those people went to that. That's how they came to God. What if you had to come to God through all this fire and all this blaze and all this earthquake and all this whirlwind and all of that? You'd be terrified. I'd be terrified. But that's not what we had to do. But now you've come to Mount Zion. We've come to something different. You've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, myriads of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteousness made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Thank the Lord we don't have to go to Sinai in all of that. We've come to Jesus Christ. But now did you see what he said right here in verse 23? You have have come to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn. When you came to Jesus Christ and received him as Lord and Savior, you became the firstborn. You get to inherit everything in the Father's house. Amen, amen. We get to inherit all of that. Why? I'm a first. Did you say I'm a, I'm a girl? Am I firstborn? Yeah. You, you get to inherit too. You're firstborn too. You say I might be the seventh son of seven sons. Doesn't make any difference. When you come to Christ, you are the firstborn. So that now you are under the blood and you don't lose your life. But the firstborn of God, Jesus, he put him on the cross to suffer your punishment so that his blood would make you now the firstborn of God. That is the salvation everyone needs. Everybody needs that kind of salvation. But now let me show you the second thing. And the second thing is this. Everything, listen, changes with salvation. Now back to Exodus chapter 12. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 1 where the Lord says to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt. He's going to lay out three things. Now I just gave you one thing right there that happens when you come under the blood. I'm going to give you three things right here that happen when you come under the blood. Now the Lord says to Moses and to Aaron, number one, salvation erases the past. He comes in verse two and he says, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. This is Rosh Hashanah, head of the months. It is the new year. They've just celebrated. I don't have time to go back and go through that, but they had just celebrated not long before this, the new year. But now God comes and he says, this is where you're going to mark your new year. It's not going to be based on the calendar of, of man. It's not going to be based on the calendar of nature. It's not going to be based on the calendar of the moon, but now your new year starts on the day of your deliverance. 
what God is saying is this. We start right now, this night, a new year because everything in your past has been taken care of. Everything is gone. All your sin, all your mistakes, all the years of failure, all the years of misery and hurt and anguish, all of that is gone. We start a new year tonight. You're delivered, you're redeemed, you're saved tonight. This begins a new year. It's the year Aviv. Aviv which means green ears. Now watch this. Not this, not, not green ear this ear. Not, not, not this is a green ear. He's talking about a head of wheat that is green. That this time of year, he says, this is the new year. This is a new piece of wheat. It is still green. Do you hear what he's saying? This is new birth. Just sit there, okay? Just sit there. This is new birth. He's giving new birth in the Old Testament. He's marking it with the calendar. He's saying this night starts everything new for you. It's the, it's the time of the year you will remember for thousands of years. This is when new life begins under the blood of the Lamb. So he comes and he says, listen, everything in your past is taken care of. Let me give you the second thing. Look at this. He says now, secondly, it creates a congregation. You're going to come to a word that's not been used all the way through the Old Testament up to here, all through Genesis, all the way up to this moment in Exodus chapter 12, verse 2. You're going to come to a noun right here, Ada. Ada is the word for congregation. This is the first time it's been used. It's going to be used continuously now from here on out. It means an assembly. It means the gathering of the people of God. It means uh, the grouping of the people of God. It means this whole idea of a multitude of a congregation coming together. What makes the congregation of God's people? The blood of the Lamb. That's the first time that's used. He speaks to the whole of the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves. According to the father's household, a lamb for each household. You just stop right there. He's saying, listen, this will change who you are together as a people. We are a congregation. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, a school can make a student. The army can make a soldier. A nation can make a citizen. I want to say the Dallas Cowboys can make a player, but that's really doubtful. So we'll just say San Francisco, Kansas City can make a ball player, you know. But nothing can make a church but the blood of Christ. We are a congregation because of the blood of Christ. That's who we are together. And I want to tell you something, folks, and I thought about this because I have I've preached twice in other churches this week. I preach in a lot of different places. And I'm in a lot of different churches, and I'm with a lot of different pastors. And I want to tell you something. There's something unique about Valleydale. Now, I know I'm pastor here. 
I don't lay any claim to any of this, but there's a uniqueness here about this congregation. And I wanna, I'm just going to stop. If you want to know about this church, I'm going to give you four things about this church. Number one, it is a church that is committed to the Word of God. This is our authority right here. Whether we always live like it, act like it, live by it or not, doesn't matter. We all come and say, this is the authority over our lives. This is what we teach. This is what we preach. And we will not, listen, we will not deviate from it. I am as committed to this with my whole heart. The only thing I know that I'm committed more to other than this is to my wife. There is no deeper commitment in my life than to the word of God. I think that that's one reason why God has blessed this church. There's another reason. I think it's because whether we do it or not, we want to see people come to Jesus Christ. Do you know this past year we had over 150 new members in this church and over 50 of them were by baptism, just like you saw today? That is one out of every three people joining this church is coming to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Do you know why? Because I am committed to evangelism. One of our values here is evangelism with urgency. One of our measures happens to be, that's one of our values, one of our measures happens to be, am I sharing Jesus regularly? Every one of you sitting in here, if you claim to be a Christian, you have the responsibility of sharing Jesus Christ with somebody. I think that's why God blesses this church is because we at least will admit that and say that. Number three, I think it's because we are committed to biblical generosity. I think we are a people who are committed to what the Word of God tells us to do. There are people in this church that are giving. I want to just read a passage to you that was uh, on my heart early this morning. I want you to listen to this out of Matthew chapter 6. And Jesus is talking about this. He's talking about how we give and the measure of our gear, giving. In um, Where is that? Luke chapter 6. I'm sorry. Luke chapter 6, he says it. Matthew, Mark, Luke. There we go. Luke chapter 6. Jesus speaking. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure. Press down shaken together, running over. <laughs> For by your standard of measure, by the standard in which you give, it will be measured out, it will be given out back to you. Now, all my life, my daddy taught me to tithe. And I, I think of that verse, I've, I've heard him quote that verse, you know, uh, it will be poured into your lap and it will be, you know, pressed down, shaken together. And this is what I always think when I read that passage. When I think of that passage, this is what I think. My mama was a great cook. Oh, my stars. Let's go home. Um, she was a great cook. But now, let, let me tell you, her specialty was baking. She could bake pies and cakes. Listen, if the people at Edgar's could get to her back door, they'd stand there and weep. Um, she, wasn't she, Debbie? She could bake, oh, my stars, what? Lord, I miss mama. Um, if I made the mistake and I came in from outside while she was baking and I started running through, I, stop that, stop that running, you're going to make my cake fall. 
come in here. And she'd call me in there. And that's the mistake. That was the mistake. When she would say, come here, I knew she wanted me to help do something. She'd say, sift that flower right there. And so she had this old sifter. I'd give anything if I could find that old thing. I don't know where it is now. She had an old sifter about like this. And I would just reach in there and I'd put it all and I'd start sifting. Nope, 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 nope. Rake that back in there. So I'd have to pile it up in the sifter. And she'd she'd say, now shake it, shake it together. Not, don't, don't sift it, shake it. Why? Because all that flour is so light, it, it would then you would sift it and it would drop a little bit. You'd sift it, uh, you would shake it and it would drop a little bit and you'd shake it and it would drop a little bit more. She said, all right, now pile it, pile it back up on top until it's heaping up there. Now shake that. You say, press that down. And when it would be overflowing, she'd said, okay, now you can sift it. And when you get through sifting it, pour all of that in there. Put it all in there. Listen, let me tell you something. That's the way God is. That when you give, he comes back and he gives to you. He, listen, he presses it down. He shakes it together and he piles it. He heaps it up over the top of the sifter and then he pours it all into your life. And there are folks here that believe that. I'm one of them. I've experienced it in my life to the point to where it's unbelievable how God has blessed my life. And I believe a lot of it has to do with the fact that I don't know any better than to give God back what he says to give to him. And by the way, it's all his anyway. And when you die, you leaving it to that old son-in-law you don't like to begin with. (laughs) He's going to get it. Here's the fourth thing, and the fourth thing is this. There's unity in the body. There is an unusual unity in this congregation for which I give God great glory, and I thank the Lord for almost every day. The Word of God says how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down on the edge of his robes. Do you know what unity does? It's like that. Do you know why they use Aaron? Do you know that when they anointed Aaron, they didn't just do a little dab of do you, you know, little little oil, put a little oil right there. When they anointed the high priest of God, they used eight and a half quarts of oil. All of that oil, that olive oil, was it had cassia in it. It had frankincense in it. It had all of these wonderful smelling spices. Cinnamon was in it. Lord have mercy. And they would pour eight and a half quarts over him so that it ran down his beard and it soaked and saturated his clothes. Do you know why they did that? so that you could smell the high priest coming before you ever saw him. And the smell, now there's some people you can smell before, you know. But when you smelled that on the high priest, it was the sweetest smell you have ever had in your life. And you knew that the representative of God was coming. Do you know that's what we're supposed to be to this world that is rotting, we are supposed to walk through this world 
and they catch a whiff of how beautiful we smell in Jesus Christ. And they say, we stink in comparison to that. It was unity. That's what attracts the world to the body of Christ is the love and the unity we have for each other in this place. Because of that, I believe God has blessed this congregation. I had a young couple just come up to me out there in the foyer. A young couple came up, introduced themselves, and said, that's who we are. How do we join this church? They've been attracted to this place because of the unity and the love that is here. It wasn't the preaching that drew them. It was something that they sense of Christ in the midst of this congregation. Now, let me give you the last thing. And the last thing is this, completely satisfied. Salvation will completely satisfy you. Watch this, verse 4, chapter 12. Now, if the household is too small, now I'm going to point out two things here that we are so easily pass over Never think about, but now watch this. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. Did you hear what that is? Is that no child of God is to ever be alone. I know we make mistakes in the church. I promise you, I have never in my life ever cut anybody out of the fellowship of God. We don't intend to overlook anybody. We don't intend to let somebody slip through a crack. I'm telling you here from the word of God that the word of God tells us not one member of the body of Christ at this church is to ever be alone. He said your neighbor if it's one of you in that house, if it's just you and a child, if it's just you, if it's you at an age uh, too old to do this, then you and your spouse go, and you go right next door. You don't have to find three blocks down the road for somebody that'll let you in. You go immediately to your neighbor. Every one of us are responsible to help and to love and to care for each other. Now, I want to tell you something. We start doing that, we'll have to beat them out the door. They'll flock in here thick as thieves because you can't get that anywhere else. And then watch this. Here's my favorite right here. Watch this. He says, according to the number of the persons, the end of verse 4, according to what each man should eat. That literally means according to what each man needs to be full. That's my verse. I'm just saying. Says that with manna. You go and you gather it in as much as that's needed there. You know what I think of with that? The feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, where there were baskets full left over. When Jesus did it, everybody was full. Here is salvation right here, is that when you come to Christ, your salvation is so full, you will never need anything else. Now, here's the tragedy in all of it. 
is that the Egyptians could have been a part of that. But they were not. In fact, if you read chapter 12, you'll see where the Lord says, if there's a foreigner, that means somebody that's not a Hebrew. He says, if there's somebody that's not a Hebrew in your house, you circumcise them and they're a part now of the family of God. The Egyptians didn't do it because they looked to something else to save them. The Hebrews, as sinful as they were, got under the blood and they sought the salvation that God would bring. I don't know if you knew about it or recognized it. Most people do not, but just about a week and a half ago, the 27th of July, was the International Holocaust Remembrance Day. It was the day to remember the Jews that were killed in Nazi Germany in the concentration camps. It happens to fall on that day because that's the day that they liberated Auschwitz. Auschwitz was the most famous now of all of the concentration camps in Germany. 1.1 million Jews were killed there. And in the days of World War II, as the soldiers were making their way to Auschwitz to liberate it, uh, they, they found out, the Germans knew they were coming. They took tens of thousands out of Auschwitz and they just gunned them down in the forest, shot them, killed them. There were about 7,000 or so that were left at Auschwitz uh, that were liberated on the 27th of January, 1945. But now here's the twist in the story that I never thought of until this year. Do you know who liberated Auschwitz? The Soviet soldiers of the 60th Army of the first front of Ukraine. And you say, well, what does that mean? The question is this. If you were liberated out of the hand of one demonic murderer, Adolf Hitler, by another demonic murderer, Joseph Stalin, have you really been liberated? And tragically, the answer is no. They fell behind the Iron Curtain, and we know what happened in those 70 years. There is no liberation from sin. You can't turn to something else in this world to liberate you. You can't turn to something else in this life to liberate you. There is liberation, salvation, redemption in one thing, and it's called the blood of the Lamb. Let's stand. All of us standing, our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Listen, That's God's word for somebody here this morning. You've never come and put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. You know about Christ. You know about church. You you own a Bible. You've even heard the story of the Passover before. But this morning, maybe it's become real for you, personal for you. That now you know that Jesus Christ came to die for you and he promises to take away your sin and he promises to give you eternal life. And you wonder, can I trust God with my salvation? You can trust 
every promise of God. Every promise. And he promises you that he will forgive all of your unrighteousness if you'll come to him. This morning, I'm going to stand here in his stead. If you've never made that decision to trust him as Lord and Savior, I'm I'm pleading with you, come, step out, slip out. Somebody will come with you. Turn to the person sitting next to you. If they're a member of Valleydale, let me tell you, they love you, they're praying for you, and they will walk this aisle with you if you'll come to give your life to Jesus Christ. Others of you need to come and join this morning. You say, how do I join this church? Just come down here. Let me talk to you for just a moment, and we'll bring you into the fellowship of this family. Some of you need to come and get at the altar. Maybe there's some things in your life you just need to come and lay down at the foot of cross. Father, I just pray that in this moment, that you would be in the midst of this invitation and that this would honor you. Our response would honor your word. And I pray that in Jesus' name. You come as Kirkwood Club. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.